Before we read our text this morning, I want to remind you of last week. Last week, Jesus was dealing with the accusations of the hard-hearted Pharisees. The accusation from them, if you remember, was that Jesus was actually casting out demons by Satan's power, not by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus responded by warning them of the great spiritual danger that they were in. And so now in our reading, his conversation with them continues uh, as he addresses the spiritual danger of their hypocrisy and their blindness. And so our scripture passage for this morning comes from Matthew 12, beginning in verse 33. Hear now the word of God. Jesus says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you may be justified, you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Thus thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would protect us from error, especially in a passage like this before us. We could very easily misunderstand what you say, or even hear its opposite. Make us keen to understand your gospel and to hear it from your mouth. Protect us from our own wisdom, protect us from our own cleverness, and speak clearly to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Gospel forgetfulness is always a danger for Christians, Uh, and part of the reason for that is that uh, gospel forgetfulness happens whenever we lose sight of who we are or who Jesus is, and usually it's a combination of both. In fact, it is a combination of both. We forget ourselves, perhaps we forget our own sin, and we forget Jesus. Uh, If we think too little of Jesus, if we think too little about Jesus, what happens? We become hopeless because we're constantly focusing on ourselves and we constantly come up desperate to fill the thing that we know we're missing apart from Christ. And since our eyes aren't on Christ, we seek to fill it with something and inevitably we will fill the empty space with ourselves. And that takes you right to the other problem with gospel forgetfulness. And it's one that Jesus sees in the Pharisees here this morning The Pharisees have a great deal of hope. They have extraordinary confidence, completely unmerited confidence. But it's a hope that's based in themselves. They are very them-centered. And and the lesson there for us is that if we think too much about ourselves and of ourselves, we will become hopeless because we will lack the gospel centrality of Jesus. We're going to have a... If we do that, we have an us-centered spirituality, uh, which is another way of saying gospel forgetfulness. And that either shows itself in false hope, right? We get false hope because we, we look at ourselves and we, we kid ourselves into thinking that we're something that we're not. 
Um, or maybe we decide that maybe we're not as bad as uh, other people. Maybe we decide to start grading ourselves on the curve. We know that that's foolish. We know that doesn't work. We still do it anyway. We default to it. But us-centered spirituality can also look like total hopelessness, right? Instead of feeling completely confident and having misplaced confidence, gospel forgetfulness can also be the opposite. It can actually lead us to total hopelessness because what are we doing? We're looking in here, and instead of kidding ourselves that we're doing great, we see that we're doing horribly. And so we feel hopeless because our eyes are in here, and what do we see? I see nothing good. I see nothing hopeful. And so we begin to despair and think, oh Lord, where is the hope? And what's happening there is our eyes still aren't on Christ. So both of these things are symptoms of gospel forgetfulness. One of them looks like presumptive hope, and the other one looks like hopeless hope. What have we done? We've forgotten our Lord, and we've defaulted to ourselves. What is the root out of which your spiritual life grows? Where is the health that your spiritual life springs from? I'm not asking where the health is that it's supposed to spring from, because you've all been to Sunday school before. You know the answer is Jesus. But I want you to think about where is your root really out of which your spiritual life grows? This is a passage today where Jesus reminds us of, of something. Either Jesus is the root for us, or else we will be the root One of those is healthy, the other one will kill us. One of those is healthy, the other one will kill us. So if we get locked into a a me-centered spirituality, here's what we do. We start to find our hope and, and our anchor in places that Jesus tells us not to find hope. We start to believe that because we're going through the motions, perhaps, God accepts us. That seems to be exactly what the Pharisees are are doing here. This seems to be exactly the spirituality of the Pharisees that Jesus is so keen on warning us about, warning them about, right? They they aren't hoping in the coming Savior. Uh, They certainly aren't hoping in Him yet, right? And so, so they do all of the right washings. They practice the right ceremonies. They stay away from the wrong places. They steer away from the wrong people. They are good. They look good. They... They act good, they, they talk good, everything about them is good on the surface at least, right? But inside they are as filthy as you can imagine, so filthy that it frustrates Jesus, right? How do I get through the hard shell so that they can see the hardness of their hearts? And, and, they, and they hope that as long as everything looks good, then everything is good. That's the shell he has to penetrate through. And that's what Jesus is confronting today. He's confronting a a poisonously self-centered spirituality that has grown so cold and so hard that they can't even see God at work or love what Jesus is doing. Think of how hard somebody's heart has to be to say what they said last week, for example, that the work of the Holy Spirit is really Satan. So Jesus is dealing here today. He's doing surgery here today. And he's letting us into the viewing room. What does Jesus have to show us? This principle of gospel-centered living is at once positively focused on Jesus and and then rightly understood attacks man-centered religion and hypocrisy. So he's he's sort of doing a two-for-one. He's he's showing them where the hope is and then he's showing them where the hope is not. And so let's look at how Jesus does this surgery today under three points. 
The three points are the tree, the treasure, and the test. The tree, the treasure, and the test. First, Jesus leads us through this gospel surgery with his first point, which is the tree. Um, Look how he says this in verse 33. He gets right to it immediately. He says, he says, either, he's giving them a choice, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Uh, At first, what Jesus says here seems like a tall order, right? After all, how do you make a tree good? How do you make a tree good? I don't know anything about plants. I I don't even know how to make a tomato plant good. Um, You look at the context here, though, and you kind of get an idea of what Jesus is is aiming at. Because think about the situation again. If, If you remember where we left off last week, Jesus performed an exorcism on this man. But when he did it, the Pharisees said that Jesus' miracle was actually Satan. And Jesus offered those words of warning in the passage about what we sometimes call the unforgivable sin. And what we saw was that Jesus warned them, be careful that your heart not be so hard that you see God and call him Satan, that you see good and call it evil. Right? So those, those accusations from the Pharisees, they come from somewhere. They don't just They're not just surface level. They come from deep down. And there's something going on deep down that is alarming to Jesus. Their hearts are in a dangerous place. How could you call God Satan except if you were hardened and blind? Right? If you have forgotten the very gospel that God preached beforehand to your father Abraham, that puts you in the position where you are in now, brothers. So when Jesus says, make the tree good, he's making a profound illustration. Um, anyone in his day who worked with trees would know that, that it takes work to make a tree healthy. You, you can neglect a tree, and you, you will watch its fruits fall, and you'll watch its leaves wither. But you can also take care of a tree and see it flourish, and you can see it healthy. The Pharisees are being warned about the danger of having pretend health. Pretend health. Um, I don't think I stole this illustration from another preacher, but someone else has probably pointed this out before. If you've ever read Lewis Carroll's book, Alice in Wonderland, sorry, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Somebody in here probably knew the right title. I've got to say it right. If you've read Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, maybe you remember this part. By the way, that book has always confused me. It is such a scatterbrained book, but uh, it was such a great Disney cartoon when I was a kid that now I remember it. Um... But Alice, you know, there's this one part where Alice comes into the queen's garden and the gardeners are very busy. They're, they're painting all of these white roses and they're, they're painting the white roses with red paint. And Alice asks them why they are doing this. Why are you doing this? something as strange as painting these white roses red? And the gardeners give her an answer. They say, this here ought to have been a red rose tree and we put a white one in by mistake. And if the queen was to find out, we should all have our heads cut off, you know. And the queen comes in, of course, and the gardeners are quite terrified that she's going to see what's wrong. She does, in fact, detect that these are white roses, that they're pretending that they're red. And, of course, you probably everybody remembers what she screams out. She screams out, off with their heads. Um, there was this desperate, mad dash to give the appearance that they had planted these red roses to begin with. Um, 
That's a bit like what Jesus is taking issue with here, right? The Pharisees are painting the white roses red. They're painting the white roses red. And it is so tempting for us to do that, right? So it's so easy and it's so natural to read this Read this story as, as if the Pharisees are the bad guys in the story. And there is nothing more helpful as far as I'm concerned than reading these stories and I'm the Pharisee. And so I look at the, the Pharisees here and I, and I think, wow, this is totally me, at least from time to time, right? There's no way that we don't pretend in our lives. There's no way that we don't push back on the sin of our own hearts by just saying, I'm going to push through it. Instead of dealing with it, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to go around it. I'm going, to, I'm going to deal with the surface instead. So, you know, we paint the trees when we focus on past spiritual successes, even though we should be repenting of current pride or current failures, right? We're painting the trees. Um, we paint the trees when we focus on our own behavior, but not the heart. Right? That's what we call moralism. And we do it very easily. It comes quite naturally, right? We say, you say, I don't care what's going on in here. As long as I behave well and act rightly, everyone will think it's fine. And maybe this thing will resolve itself. We're painting the trees. Um, by the way, this is easy to fall into as parents especially, right? I don't care what's going on as long as you stop fighting. Nobody in this house say another word for the next 24 hours and we'll be fine. Um, might have even said it this last week. I don't know. Maybe this is coming from a really personal place. Um, we paint the trees when we are struggling mightily with something and we refuse to talk to anyone about it. Right? I, I can't show weakness. I can't let someone see what's going on. And so we perform and we paint. And Jesus is calling for integrity. He's calling for wholeness. He, he's calling for us to be the same person in private as we are in public. That person is more disappointing, but he's also more real. And he's calling the Pharisees to it. He's like, show me who you really are. Stop playing. Stop pretending. Just let us see who you are. And he's not Matthew didn't write this down so that we could know a historical conversation. He's, he's writing it down because it's applicable to us. It's not just, well, there was a great debate and Jesus beat them and here's the way he did it this time. He wrote it here because it's for us too, right? <laughs> because he knows that we, we lean towards these things as well. He's saying to us, make the tree match the fruit. Make the fruit match the tree. Stop performing. Seek to... Seek to actually cultivate these things at the heart level. And let's be very clear. When Jesus says, make the tree good, he is not looking at the Pharisees and saying, why can't you be better? Why can't you act better? Why can't you live better, look better? Nobody in Israel was doing those things better than them. That's not what Jesus is calling for. He's, he's actually doing the opposite. He's saying, he's saying, actually love God and stop just performing your love. Be on the inside what you act on the outside. Be on the outside what you act on the inside. He calls for the heart and he calls for the action to, to line up. And that's why he says in verse 34, oh, it's so harsh. Uh, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are, are evil? Stop acting good but having a corrupt heart. The, the principle of the tree here is that we should be the whole, the, whole, the whole people in the same places in private as we are 
in public. We should be the same people in public that we are in private. We ought to be recognizable in both locations. And that's the first point this morning. It's the principle of the tree, making sure the tree matches the fruit. But how do we get there? Um, That takes us further into Jesus' lesson. So let's just go to the next, which is the, the principle of the treasure, going down to verse 34. He, he goes further into the principle, right? He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So Jesus is calling out hypocrisy, right? These, these trees are, and their fruits don't line up. They've, they've painted these trees, ignoring the fact that I know Lewis Carroll must have known that I don't think roses grow on trees, they grow on bushes, but... Uh, that's part of the silliness of the story, right? But stop painting the trees. Stop performing. Stop acting. Whatever you do, put, put away the make-believe, pretend holiness. Jesus has had enough of it. But how are you supposed to address that when you see it in yourself? How are we supposed to address it when we see, see it going on in our lives? If there's, if there's hypocrisy in our lives, what are we supposed to do? You know, we feel so helpless about our own hearts to begin with. Well, Jesus' answer is, is not for us to begin acting wickedly, since that's what we are on the inside. Right? That's, that's not what he's calling for. He's, he's, he's saying, look, if, you, if, if you're just bad, then just be bad. That's not what he's saying. Um, he's saying deep down, if your heart is bad, then address those things. Address those things at the heart level. Address those things for what they are. Address them as matters of the heart. By the way, in parenting, that's the harder thing to do, right? Again, you can just say, silence, I proclaim silence for 24 hours. But that doesn't actually get underneath of where the conflict comes from, right? Um, if he's going to pick something to happen for the Pharisees, he, he does want them to not act worse. He doesn't, he's not calling for them to just be the demons that they are on the inside. He's calling them to conform their hearts to what they already know. Because what they're acting out is actually what they are deep inside. And so he's calling for heart change, right? He's calling for them to address their hearts instead of ignoring their hearts. In other words, he's calling them to repent. He's calling them to repent. He does this by laying out this incredibly basic point that that should not need to be said. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? He thinks of the heart as this thing that overflows and whatever is in there comes out. It, it spills over. So I was living in uh, Mississippi for, I lived in Mississippi for about eight years. I'm not from Mississippi. I'm from Kansas. But uh, when I went to Mississippi, the state is just green and trees everywhere. In Kansas, there are trees nowhere. It's the windiest place in the entire universe. Um, I'm probably windier than, than Mars or whatever. Like, it's a windy place. So I go to Mississippi, and I see nothing that I recognize at all. And then one day I get a preaching assignment. I believe it's Greenwood, Mississippi, in the northwest corner of the state. Um, and it is, it is the, uh, the Delta. If you've ever heard of the Mississippi Delta. So I go to the Delta, and suddenly it looks like home. Flat everywhere. Fields everywhere. Nothing interesting to be seen in every direction. Um, and I think, this looks like Kansas. Weird. I mean, it's humid, and the mosquitoes are as big as my hands, but it, otherwise it, it feels like Kansas. Well, the, the Delta is, is a region where it's tons of farming, and the reason is it's, 
in the northwest corner of the state, and it's right along the edge of the Mississippi River. Back before the Army Corps of Engineers placed dams and reservoirs all along the river, there were these flood seasons. And whenever the flood season would come, what would happen? The rivers would spill over the banks, and whatever was in the river would get carried out into the surrounding area. Now, to us, that may sound like a disaster, but here's what it was. It was amazing because it took all these riches and all of, these, all of these, uh, uh, all the health that was in the soil being carried along the Mississippi River, and it would just flood out onto the plains, and the delta would become one of the richest places to grow food in the entire world. Um, it's got the blackest, richest soil. And that happened every time that the floods would recede. Well, what happens? Um, uh, the river would spill over, and after a while, the Army Corps of Engineers said, justifiably, hey, people's homes are being destroyed. This place is really dangerous. Let's build the dams up. Let's build reservoirs. Let's find ways, places for all this water to drain off. And as they did that, they had to build the levees, and they built the levees higher and higher and higher so that the flooding in the delta would stop. But do you know what happened? It sped up the movement of the water through the river, and so it had these disastrous effects for other parts of the Mississippi River. And now they have to build dikes higher and higher and higher to accommodate the rising water in the river. Trying to contain it and preventing it from spilling over did not stop what was happening. It just changed where it came out. Do you see? That's what our heart is like. The heart, our heart is like, is like the mighty Mississippi River that is going to spill over one place or another. It's going to be seen. It's going to show its face. Its abundance will eventually rise up and affect us one way or another. One way or another, we end up revealing what is in our hearts. Jesus says we must stop pretending and we must address matters of the heart. In the ministry of Jesus, you never, ever see him focusing exclusively on behavior. He says, let's address the heart, let's address your soul, what is driving you to this sin. I mean, think of it, we've already seen it, right? We've been here in, in the Gospel of Matthew now for a while, and you remember this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaches in a way that runs deep, not shallow. Right? He's, not, he's not coming after, he's not moralizing the crowd. Instead, he goes deeper. He goes deeper on every sin that he preaches about. He preaches about adultery, but guess what he does to preach on adultery? He addresses the subject of lust, which is the deeper sin, right? Uh, he, he focuses on stealing, but he actually deals with the heart problem, the heart problem of envy, right? You want what you can't have, it's not yours to take, and that feeling and that belief and that love for something that's not yours comes out. It comes out in the form of stealing. He doesn't just focus on murder, right? Instead, he goes to the heart problem, which is deeper, the problem of hatred. Right? So Jesus is always digging deeper down to the level of our motivations and our loves. The conclusion here is not to become better at deception, or better at pretending, or to use more paint on the roses, or to build the dikes higher. Jesus' lesson is far simpler, and it's also far more painful. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Such an ugly word that so many people resist, and they resist, 
and they resist. It's the reason that you resist addressing the sin in your own heart because there is nothing fun on the surface level about repenting. But Jesus says, address the heart at the heart level. At the heart level, confess your sin. You know, to, to pray with the, with the psalmist. Do heart surgery on me, Lord. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. My heart, my thoughts, that is in, as, as invasive as you can get. Correct. That is why it is easier to pretend and paint. Right? Why, it's why so many choose gospel amnesia and shallow performance. Because when we think we don't have to face what's in there deep down, then we will. If we think there's a way to avoid it, we will put it off. And Jesus is saying, enough. He's calling us to admit that we are not living or loving as we should. And even more, he's calling us to admit that our own hearts aren't right and no amount of performance or pretending can possibly hide it. And this leads to the third point of Jesus' words today, which is the test. Look at verse 36. He says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. On the day of judgment, the problem will not actually be the words themselves that we've spoken. What is the real issue? The heart that they came from. Right? We're going right back to that invasiveness issue again, aren't we? His issue is the heart that they came from. The words are an evidence of what is in the heart. The fruit of our mouth shows what kind of tree we were really dealing with. Ultimately, on the day of judgment, the reason Jesus says, by your words you will be justified, is not because we are saved by saying the right words. Putting all of this message together, you see what Jesus is getting at. The mouth shows the heart. The, the mouth reveals the heart. The heart is the real issue. It has been from the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew all the way up to this point. This is the same message he's been preaching before. He's just doing it in every different way. He's, he's turning the diamond at every possible angle and trying to see, can I get at you? If I can't get at you through this, maybe I can get you through this. We're being invited by Jesus to come to him. He doesn't invite people who are good and clean. He invites those who are sick and he invites those who are not well. He invites us to come and admit to him like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. I am a man of unclean lips. We're invited to confess that our lips are unclean because we are unclean. Even in Isaiah 6, Isaiah's problem was not really his mouth. It was the, it was the heart that those words came out of, right? Now, all of our lips are unclean, and by nature, all of our hearts are bad. But we only know that if we do what Jesus just talked about. Invite God to search our heart and show us what's there that we don't want to see. To show us what's there so that we have no choice but to come to Jesus for gospel healing. But even just seeing our hearts by itself doesn't really get at, to the real issue, right? A admitting our sin is worthless if we don't do something with our sin. Uh, I was talking to a friend who was interviewing uh, a child for... Uh, uh, to become a communing member at his church. And he was telling me about the, 
the interview process, and one of the things they asked the child was, are you a sinner? And the child said, yes. And then he said, and then he asked the child, what do you do with your sin? Do you keep your sin? Or does somebody take your sin? And he couldn't get him to say the right answer. That doesn't mean that he, he, he couldn't get him to, to, to give the answer, right? Um, but what interests me is not how that examination went with this child. The real question I have for you is, fine, you'll say, I'm a sinner. What do you do with your sin? What do you do with your sin? I'm, <laughs> did somebody take your sin? Right? Do you just admit that you're a sinner and, and think that's sufficient? I just said that I, I'm not such a great person, or I said I make mistakes, or I, I, I said out loud that I, that I am a sinner. Right? But, but reflect, on, reflect on this for yourself. Think of your real answer again, not the, not the Sunday school answer, but what is your answer right now? What do you do with your sin? Where do we go with our sin? Where do we go with our heart attitudes? When we realize what's going on in our hearts, where do we go? Who do we confess to? Who do we give our sin to? Is there anyone to take our sin? Because the answer is not just to feel bad and feel despair. That is not the Christian message. That's not the message Jesus has for the Pharisees. It's not the message he has for his disciples. It's not the message that Matthew intends us to see by reading this this book here in 2023. Regret is not enough. Regret is not the gospel. Wishing we hadn't sinned is not the gospel. Regretting the consequences of our sin is not the gospel. The question is, what is your real answer to this question? Who will help you? Deep down, who do you believe will rescue you? Who will wash you? Who will forgive you? Who will be your sacrifice? Who will live... If you live with regret, but you don't confess, then your answer is me. If you live with regret, but you won't confess, your answer is me. I'll take it on myself. I'll wash myself. I'll forgive myself. I'll get rid of this filth. And you can't do it. That's, that's what gospel forgetfulness is. Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You, you, you wash away your own sin. Paul's got the real answer. Jesus saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That is the gospel hope. That's the gospel hope. And that's, that's why the rejection of Jesus is such a big deal in this passage, because the Pharisees are rejecting the Savior, and if you reject the Savior, your sin problem doesn't go away. Your sin still has to be answered. Your guilty conscience still has to have an answer. And it has to be answered by someone who can actually deal with it. But now you have no one to wash you because you've rejected Jesus. It's why Jesus is so afraid for the Pharisees here. It's why Jesus had such harsh words for them as we, we saw them last week already. He's, he's afraid for them. Because even as we sense our sin and, and confess We are meant to do something in that process. We're meant to turn from ourselves and flee to the Lord Jesus and rest on him alone and hope in him alone. That's the only way our sin actually gets dealt with, by going to Jesus. When we do that, um, Jesus tells his people he will do more than just passively stand by and be glad for you. He will send his spirit within so that 
You never have to perform. You never have to pretend. You never have to act again. Because in him, we are absolutely secure. Even when we fail, we don't have to be afraid and we don't have to hide. Why? Because we've been accepted in Christ and the perfect love of Jesus casts out all fear. We do not perform out of fear. We don't have to perform. We don't have to perform because we're accepted in him. And so instead he says, I will come to you. In that day you will know me that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. So the promise is not, I will make you a better performer, a better actor, a better pretender. That is not what he's promising in the least bit. That's what he's fighting. That's what he's fighting. The promise is, trust in me and I will come make my home within your heart and you will know peace and you will know forgiveness. And now when you sin, you will have no fear of condemnation. You can get back on the horse. And instead, I will care for you and I will give you my peace and I will shape you and change you so that as you trust in me, I will renovate your heart and make it a home suitable for me. That is what Jesus wants for his listeners. For the Pharisees, he wants this for them. For his disciples, and yes, for you and me. We just have this natural tendency to drift toward ourselves, toward finding security in ourselves, toward finding hope and looking to ourselves. That's the way gravity looks like for us. Um, Even after believing in Christ, even with the Holy Spirit, our default is still to drift toward us. Um, And Jesus is not calling for his listeners to reform their lives. He is not calling for you to to participate in some 12-step plan. He is calling you to come to him and to have your sinful heart addressed by the grace of Jesus. You admit that you're a sinner. What will you do about it? Who will you go to for it? He's saying, I am here. It is me. I am the answer. By cutting themselves off from Jesus... What the Pharisees have done is they've cut themselves off from the only hope they had for forgiveness in life. Now, we're not literal members of the sect of the Pharisees. But even as Christians, we, we do this. We have this tendency. It's, I said before, it's like gravity for us. It's, it's why it's very important for renewal movements to exist in the church. Um, we need to experience a renewal of the gospel in our lives, even if we think we know and understand that gospel. Um, I've probably repeated this before, but um, somebody came to Luther once. In fact, maybe in Sunday school this morning, we're even going to get to Luther's preaching and talk a little bit about Martin Luther's preaching. Um, Sometimes you read Luther, and he seems a little one note. He's got something he's very, very focused on, and it's the gospel. And one time, I don't know if this is an apocryphal story, but uh, the the story goes that someone came to Luther and said... um, Luther, why do you keep preaching the gospel every Sunday? And his answer was, because you keep forgetting it every Sunday. Um, And Luther knows the human heart. He was not a stupid man. He was a brash man, and he was sometimes very rude. Um, But he wasn't stupid. He was one of the best educated men in all of Europe. And and he understood that, that we instinctively look to our own growth and our own holiness as the foundation of our hope, right? We, we very naturally set our eyes on ourselves. And so if we're doing well, we feel secure. And if we're doing badly, then we feel afraid and insecure. And we just can't stop making it all about ourselves instead of Jesus. And so, of course, when we look in the mirror, what do we do? We come away discouraged. 
and is a problem for all Christians. Anyone who has read the word of God, seen their face in there, and been very grossed out by what they see in the reflection, knows what it's like to be troubled by what we see in our own hearts. And it's when that happens, it's, it's a moment for us to realize that we haven't made Jesus our strength, we made our own actions and the approval of other people the thing that we really live for. Christians are no longer sure, who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements are actually incredibly insecure people. And that insecurity hampers Christian growth, right? Because now there's actually this element of fear in why we're moving forward in the Christian life. Why am I doing this? Well, I'm afraid to go to hell. Or I'm afraid that... I'm a... There's fear underneath of it all. And see, that's the danger. That is the problem that we fall into as Christians and even as the church. We become insecure. We become fearful. We become concerned that we're not measuring up. We keep watching ourselves and coming up disappointed. But because we've forgotten the gospel, we keep digging around in here and, and looking at ourselves and looking at others and thinking that somewhere we're going to find the switch, somewhere in here we're going to find the security and we're going to find the peace that we crave. And so we keep working and we keep fighting for it. And as Jesus tells us, the problem is a heart that hasn't found its strength and vitality in Christ keeps building everything around ourselves instead of him. Where are we supposed to find the strength? In the second century, there was a pastor. His name was Diognetus, and he gave an excellent statement of exactly where we should find our hope. He wrote this in a letter to his church. And I really can't think of a better note to end on, so let me read to you what Diognetus says to his church. Jesus did not hate us or reject us or bear a grudge against us. Instead, he was patient and forbearing. In his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone. Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify so many sinners. You want to look for somewhere to plant your security and to plant everything that you build on there you go because do you see what's missing from that summary of the good news you and what you've done you and what you've done that's that's absent from the good news diagnetus is preaching to these people he's he all he all he has to do is say jesus 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 the substance is there And Jesus wants us to see it this day. The only path to forgiveness, to wholeness, to integrity, and away from hypocrisy is to come to Christ, sin and all, and lay it at his feet and to admit that we have nothing for him but sin and we need everything from his righteousness. Let's pray this morning.
Lord Jesus, would you change us so that we find all our hope and meaning and identity in you? Protect us from the hypocrisy of performance and pretending and conform our hearts to you so that, so that your will and your word become something that is lovely to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.